certainly the biggest band in town. I thought you were from Atlanta. We live in Johns Creek, Georgia, or Alpharetta, Georgia. Okay, his name is. So it's like about Don't thirty. No, no one does. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. which um, is why you would be the biggest band. Which, yeah, no doubt about it. No, no one there lives. There's no one there that lives there between the age of eighteen and forty. Except for us. That's problematic when you're in a rock and roll band, right? No, it's great for us. <laughs> as far as like trying to get an audience, but oh, I guess well, you don't course. have to attract no. people locally at no, this point. No, certainly not. No. No. <laughs> no, and even Atlanta, we weren't ever trying to get a crowd in Atlanta. It was always about getting outside of Atlanta yeah. and, and going to other areas, Nashville and South Carolina, and starting to build a fan base there. Um, but yeah, where we live is so normal and just very kind of Pleasantville that when we travel to all these crazy places, we get our fix of the city yeah you know the city life and kind of that the whole thing and then we get home it's like ah parking yeah you know? is there like no nightlife is there nothing to do for well, 21 year olds yeah, <laughs> what's great is we live a mile and a half which in new york is a 45 minute drive yeah for us it's a two minute drive yeah and then our studios in between our drummer lives right around the corner so our nightlife is like okay you want to come over we'll grill yeah. out yeah. We can have, you know, 20 people on the deck. We'll hang out. We'll have drinks there. And it's way, way cheaper. You guys have been doing this for a while now. And generally when bands hit a certain point, has it, how many years has it been at this point? I started the band in 2003. Okay. So 14 yeah. years. But 14 I mean, years. I guess officially the first release would have been 2005. Yeah. Um, so yeah, 12 years doing it. Usually when you, you hit... Uh, even like this, maybe the seven year mark, that's when a lot of people sort of start to scatter. You, mm-hmm. know, you know, most bands that are beyond that, like have, have members all over the country, but you guys have managed to stay local. Yeah, somewhat until uh, our, our latest bass player lives in Nashville, yeah. um, but that's close enough. It's kind of a three and a half hour drive that okay. can be made simple, you yeah. know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I get that too. We've had people leave the band and, and I understand that. It's like, it's a really weird job to have. Yeah. I, I, I turned 30 last year and, yeah, there's lots of feelings of like, wow, I never, I mean, I definitely thought I'd be doing this, but like, it's crazy that I'm still doing it and that it's still working and like, I'm able to provide for my family. There's the doing it and then there's the like still living in this really small town. I mean, you know, a lot of bands are still together, but d- well, don't live in the same area code. I think the way that we've been able to continue to be productive and, and successful is by, you know, uh, in 2013, we bought a house and we, yeah. 12, we and gutted the whole thing and then built a full on studio, like within a mile of our homes. And so now it's like you go to the studio every day, I mean, yeah. regardless of what's happening, we go in there and we work on something, you know, and then there's always something to do. And if there isn't something to do, then we, we make something to That's do. The best time. Yeah. Like last week we were working on this. Um, I, I'd never listened to the Avid Brothers before, uh-huh. really, like heavily. I knew they were great. and That's surprise. so that well surprises res- me, actually, because yeah, I feel like I, they could be right in your wheelhouse. I, yeah, evidently they are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out. Turns this out band that everyone's been comparing <laughs> us to is right. <laughs> Turns out I really like them. Yeah. Um, but there's a song they had called No Hard Feelings that I, I, I saw in that show Love that was on mm-hmm. Netflix. The yeah, yeah, Judd yeah. Apatow. Yeah. Is he part of that? Yeah, he's yeah. producer. Yeah. Um, and I was like, what is this song? It's yeah. like James Taylor mixed with like, you know, just the most kind of devastating lyrics and found yeah. it was them. And that's the kind of thing that I'd call Rob and the guys and go like, we got to work on a cover. It just keeps us sharp. It's like uh, just continuing to make something, continue to dive into other people's songs um, is, is really important and kind of go, huh. like, what are they doing here? And that song is a great example of like, that song uses every chord that we know and love 
but I would have never put in that particular order. And it kind of makes your brain go like, oh, right, that's genius. And yeah. and lyrically, it's if, if anybody hasn't heard it, I suggest listening to it. It's just a, it's a devastating, heartbreaking, beautiful song. Um, so it's stuff like that, you know, and, and it could be that or, you know, uh, Future of the Left, like a hardcore <laughs> a, a British band covering, yeah, yeah. you know, You Need Satan. Welsh. Yeah, they are Welsh, <laughs> yeah. Um, we like covered You Need Satan more than he needs you. And like the songs never come out, or yeah. sometimes they do. Sometimes yeah. we'll release a cover, but um, it just keeps us sharp. You guys do homework assignments. Essentially, yeah, yeah. yeah. You sound like you might be a pretty uh, harsh taskmaster when it comes to actually getting shit done. I, I think I probably am during the writing process more than oh, – I don't know. I mean that would probably be – Robert's equally um, yeah, as intense as I am. <laughs> I don't really feel like just because you're a musician that yeah. means that you avoid this work hour and work you know load that everyone else has. It's like yeah. just because I get to play music and you know a tour might be the – financially beneficial part that doesn't mean that i should put in 40 to 60 hours a week just staying sharp mm. doing something something that makes me go oh man i can't wait until the next time we do a record i now know this mm-hmm. and so there's i wake up every morning and it's like and I, I think the other side of touring and being being a musician there there was time where i had no routine in my life because yeah. i would get back from tour we were doing 250 days a year and get back and it's like, yeah, I'll sleep till 2 p.m. And that's not healthy. It's not good when you start, when you get married, when yeah. you start having kids and stuff yeah. like that. So it, it's a way for us to bridge an abnormal job to a normal life, which is just simply working. You guys might not have the same experience because you've been basically in a band for your and in, in, in in pretty successful for, for most of the duration of the bands uh, for most of your, if not your entire adult lives. I've got a day job that I go into and it's a pretty straight like office job and, and I pretty much have since I moved out here. And there was a point, I'm in publishing, which means that every, every once every couple of years you get, you get laid off. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just part of the job. And I had a period of about eight months where I was freelancing. I was talking to a lot of friends who did in the lead up. Like, this is really great. You can go to the movies in the middle of the day. It's wonderful. I couldn't do it. Yeah. I, I don't know what it was, but I had this tremendous sense of guilt's not the right word, but it kind, kind of, of is though, but uselessness, you know, yeah. like if I'm not getting something I done totally, while everyone else is working, I totally understand yeah. what you mean. I never thought about it as the other people working, Yeah, but it was definitely, yeah. and especially since my daughter was born, that then took it. I think my later 20s, like 26 to 28, I sort of felt the most comfortable I've felt in life of just like, wow, this is really great. Like everything seems to be pretty wonderful. And then when she was born, obviously my value of life and everything went up and it's all amazing. But it also, I remember like we used to go see movies and we finished the Cope record. We we got this thing called a movie pass where you pay 30 bucks a month and you go see as many movies as you want at any theater. I remember though, after my daughter was born, I wanted to go see a movie and she'd been home for like a week and my wife is the coolest and I was like, I want to go see this Planet of the Apes movie. And I remember going to see the movie and, and 30 minutes into it was like, it's ridiculous that I'm sitting in this movie. I either need to be at home helping and being with my daughter yeah. um, or I need to be working for my daughter you know, and, and creating music in order for her to you know have some opportunities in her life did you notice a, a marked change in the workload when the kid came along not really I I enjoy working yeah. and always have enjoyed like 
I don't sit still well. So we do miss our movies. Like we still haven't seen Guardians of the Galaxy mm-hmm. 2, which has been bumming us out. But it wasn't this like, okay, now all of a sudden we're going to start working harder. It was more of now all of a sudden it seems like gears are moving smoother. Like everyone's looking in the same direction. Like we got to get this shit done. The hours of the day started to be more valuable. Yeah. So that yeah. then became... Well, there are fewer of them when you exactly. have a kid. Yeah. And, and, and even if there were fewer, they just, they mattered more. Yeah. And we were fortunate enough. It was kind of crazy. Like we started to, we, we released a record called Cope, which is a very loud, mm-hmm. very fast rock record. And then we released a record called Hope that is the exact same record, but done yeah. beautifully as best we could. And we started recording the first, like the first half of hope right before my daughter was born. Mm. And then the second half we had to finish like right after she was born. So, I mean, it was like three or four days after we had gotten home, you kept working while, yeah. while, I, while we were in the hospital and, and, and my wife was recovering from her surgery. They were still working on the record. And then basically the set, first chance I got in, we, that was the first time we started to figure out our work hours of like, all right, we're going to do like a solid Nine thirty a.m. to four thirty, five thirty a.m. p.m. and we're gonna learn how to stop. And learning how to stop was also a very yeah. important thing. That's something that I hadn't considered is not having to take the work home with you. Although you can do that, and you can set some very specific time parameters. But I mean, at the end of the day, when you're doing something creative, you can't you can't shut it off. Especially when you're a songwriter, when you're kind of looking for inspiration everywhere. I agree. Yeah, but you have to in a certain sense because yeah. if you start to really hate the song, you know, like there were times when we were writing Cope, we'd spend all day on a song, and you, it was like sixteen hours of the same song, and, and then I'm driving home listening to it and going, I hate what we did today, you know, and that's just <laughs> yeah. so unhealthy. You yeah, know? I think Robert said it well earlier today in an interview that there's a great power in going to sleep and not Mm. judging what you know you've done in that moment and we learned that too where it's like we still do that to this day where we're working on something we're feeling really really excited and the first kind of moment that we start to feel like i hate this we're like all right forget it like let's let's leave let's let's go home but how much of that actual writing is happening during those daylight hours well it just depends on what we're writing yeah uh we've Spending the last couple of weeks working on commercials, which is a whole other different uh, <laughs> world. <laughs> it's, it's almost art by committee, and you talk to all these, you know, cre- it is easier to do during yeah. the day. Yeah, I mean, it's a daytime job. It is a daytime yeah. job. Yeah, and you can't be precious about things when you're working. For Certainly a not when. Yeah, exactly. You're on a phone call with an ad agency, and mm-hmm. there's 15 people telling you all the different things that they want to hear from the song. And yeah. you know, we wouldn't have had any idea how to do that if we had not scored the movie. So we sort yeah. of have a little bit of an understanding of that now. In a sense, doing Swiss Army Man kind of opened up this world of commercial music making. It, for you. Yeah, it did. Oh. Yeah, unbelievably. Because like, what a not commercial soundtrack you made for that movie well maybe it is a commercial soundtrack to a certainly uncommercial movie (laughs) sure 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 which is kind of the cool thing about it is that we've gotten like this ebay commercial that's running right now has picked our song montage from that soundtrack which is just the weirdest little song but it also because the movie wasn't an enormous hundred million dollar you know success it was a successful movie but um it's not tied to it. It's yeah. not like my heart will go on being used in the eBay sure. you know, commercial. So yeah, it's yeah. still got this kind of freshness to it. It's really, it's fascinating. And 
it's cool because we've gotten a couple of things um, overseas where they'll go like, we really love this song, but we want you to do something new, you know, with it. So we did a commercial for Home Depot in Germany, um, an Italian energy commercial. I guess it's a nice thing about doing lyricless stuff about actually scoring is that, it, you know, it can be on a commercial in Italy. Yeah, it, it doesn't really make it easier. It's, it's easier for me because I'm the one who's writing the lyrics in our band. It's certainly harder for Rob who's yeah. uh, having to like take all of our ideas that we're throwing out and actually put them to, to task in, in the yeah. computer. Um, but yeah, that's that's been uh, what we've been working on recently. I think the challenge is great and I, I suspect that that probably opened up a lot for you guys and, and maybe helped you think differently than you had for you know the past several years but how do you how do you make a piece of music without instruments we did not know when we started yeah it was i mean i would probably feel like an idiot at first doing it oh, right? there, there was a lot of that of like don't look me in the eye while this is happening <laughs> and then okay we're in it together like it really is like jacking off isn't and, it <laughs> What are you talking about? Eye contact. You don't make eye contact. (laughs) (laughs) It, but like eventually, like in order for us to talk, it had to. We had to be like, no, no, like maybe it's more of like a, like arguing over the dumbest shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we we signed up for it not knowing how to score a movie. Yeah. So also not knowing how we were going to make the music, it was like, oh, what's what's scarier? Figuring out how to make the music or figuring out how to score a movie. And so it was kind of just... Which which is scarier. Our manager calling me and going, all right, I've talked to the movie company, and here are your two options. So you can <laughs> you can provide the music yeah. and write songs for it like you've been doing you know, yeah. for them. That, that's inspiration. Or you can like be the composer for the film uh-huh. and like then that what that means is you are going to be in charge of every single piece of music in the entire movie and i remember like walking around the studio talking to him and like it didn't take long at all i was like we have to do that like yeah. how would we ever learn to do that if we didn't do it right yeah. now you know and and we might never get this opportunity again so it was a no-brainer to do it um it was just like how are we possibly going to do it? And it was so much idiot savant stuff. It was amazing. Like we would just be like, it would be terrible for two hours, terrible for three hours, terrible for four hours. And then we'd find something, add some other element and go like, that is fucking beautiful. (laughs) The Ava brothers thing too is, is this idea of, you know, cause what you said there was really interesting is, you know, basically the band using the exact same five chords, but for whatever reason you just hadn't, happened upon I hadn't thought about putting them in that order yeah. and, and and I, I'm guessing for, for in a case like something like this like you've got to distance yourself from it a little bit reapproach it well so that's the difference between doing a score and then your own album yeah. so like when you're doing the score there's kind of a beauty in like this isn't all my fault if everyone hates this, this is not all my fault. Like you the know? source material might yeah, be a fault. Yeah. Well, or just like, you know, yeah. I didn't have a final say yeah, on yeah, 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 every yeah. single little bit. It, yeah, exactly. It's a part of, you know, you can like kind of rationalize in your head and yeah. go like, all right, cool. Yeah, well, look, we're going to follow this thing. And then there was a beautiful part of that, too. I remember we had to write the music um, for the movie. We had to write half of it first and then the second half after because the actor sang the music on screen. Yeah, yeah. So that was crazy. And I remember the Daniels, though, the directors coming down and us being in the studio and working on that music and them giving us these ideas. And these aren't musical guys. They're just 
they're talking to us in theatrics and we're trying to hear what they're saying and then and transcribe it into some s- different audio thing and I, I remember it happening and going and looking at Daniel Kwan and like this is going to be a massive influence for me like my mm. brain is opening right now it's, it's yeah. really really opening um, and then that's when we came to the next phase of writing this one it was like we tried to take the mentality of like how how do we rearrange and, and, and reverse engineer all of this stuff you know and to, to make sure we're not sliding into a place that we feel too comfortable or that we you know basically this entire new record we tried to do the opposite of everything hmm. that we were comfortable with we touched on it a little bit but for the score you know it, it is is it at all similar to the way you've written music in the past from the standpoint of you know i assume that like, there's a certain amount of humming that happens you know in order to sort of like figure out a melody for a song yeah. anyway so maybe maybe the seeds are similar Certainly. They yeah. definitely were similar. Yeah. I, our, our friend Kevin Devine said it best. He's like, you have all the tools. You know you have all the tools. <laughs> You're just playing in a different sandbox. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly yeah. what's happening. It, it. I sat down with the guitar and wrote the first song after we read the script. And I wrote the first song that I hmm. felt should be, you know, that, that sort of tied in. It was my reflection of what um, the movie was about. You me. wrote the non-instrumental music on instruments? I did, yeah. The, the end credit, the final yeah. song that rolls when the credits hit is the very first song I wrote. And then what we found was I, then I started writing some of the songs, the, the, the chords in the same key. And then Rob and I started to figure out that we had developed like three or four different melodies that could work over top of all different types yeah. of chord structures, and then we realize, like, oh, this is kind of a musical that's starting to happen. And because to do a score, you have to have certain points that you come sure. back to. Revisit, yeah, and we know. never even really thought about that huh. until that moment where it hit, where it was like, oh, yeah. right. And the the, the dance keep going, and we'd love for this melody to come yeah. back, and we're going, oh yeah, well we could do this. You're like, over oh yeah, top Star Wars. This. Like that's what. <laughs> Speaking of yeah. the coolest moment of the entire process was that the Daniels asked us to record uh, this acapella-ish Swiss Army Man version of Jura- the Jurassic Park uh-huh. theme song. And we were annoyed. They were in Atlanta for like five days, and so yeah. we had five days to like knock out a bunch of stuff, and so we should use our time wisely. Daniel Kwan was obsessed with this idea, and kept pushing for it, kept pushing for it, and finally we were like, you know what? Fuck it, we'll do it. Like, if you really need it for the movie and we recorded it being like well they're never going to get it cleared we wasted an entire day but now we have this fun cover of jurassic park mm-hmm. at the end of the day it's a pretty silly thing to get annoyed about <laughs> sort of. it's a fun project right it's it's fun but when uh when, when you're you looking the down the barrel yeah. of scoring a movie when yeah. you don't know how to do that and you're yeah. kind of like oh god like how are we going to do this how are we going to do this and you spend 14 hours on a hypothetical thirty-second scene, sure. you you fair, start fair to enough. you fair start enough. to worry a little bit. Yeah, and then I remember I think Shrinart FaceTimed us, or yeah. so we do the song and it's beautiful. We're like laughing at how beautiful it is. <laughs> then yeah, I was laying in bed at about eleven o'clock at night and got a FaceTime from the other Daniel uh, Daniel Shrinart, and uh, I, I I ran out of bed and answered. I was like, "What's going on?" He was like, "John Williams just gave us." the okay he's heard your version 
he loves it and it's in the movie and i was like holy shit and then what was crazy is when we were mixing this movie we mixed it at this dolby studio like the dolby headquarters Mm -hmm. in atmos which is like more than 9.1 it's basically 130 speakers around your head um and every day we would go to the bathroom and when you would pee at the urinal there would be a john williams uh album right there and you go like i'm doing you proud there are like levels of surreality, which I imagine the entire process of doing that was. I mean, because, you know, you mentioned earlier composing something that the actors would, would have to perform. Oh, Harry Potter is. Yeah, totally. Oh, song. yeah. Yeah, man. The spending spending a day or two in the studio with yeah. Daniel Radcliffe and Paul Dano is, was an unbelievable experience. Yeah. And they're both looking at us the same way a band that we're producing would look at us and go like, all right, so what do I need to do? You yeah. Know? We're going like, you're doing great, you know? But we, they allowed us to talk to them like that and say like, well, it's, it, this part's a little pitchy and we want to kind of really go for this thing. And you have to put all of it out of your brain. That it's, it's Brian Wilson and Harry Potter. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> right. Well, and I even said that to Paul at one point. I was like, this is really because what I had been influenced with my part that he was going to then yeah. replace my part with his was a Beach Boys thing for that song. I don't remember what it's called. Wait for her. Talk to her, I think. Yeah. The, yeah. It was very uh, Beach Boys thing. And I was like, this sucks, but kind of Brian Wilson it a little more. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I know you've just spent the last yeah. year you know, in yeah, character in playing head, yeah. him. Yeah. Um, but they were pros, you know, and there's nothing else to say about it. Then they were just like wonderful and kind guys who were just, you, you could tell they were in the same position we were, just like trying to do the best that we could and believing in, in this movie. Now you have no excuse to not take whatever crazy thing somebody offers up because, I mean, it sounds like pretty much, aside from the stress, which is going to be a part of putting out any album, Anything. but it sounds like a really positive experience. And the fact that you jumped into something you didn't know how to do and really leaned into it really paid off at the end of the day. I, I couldn't agree more. And we knew that the whole time. You yeah. know, the frustrations were frustrations, but they were, we also were going like, dude, this movie might premiere at Sundance. And it was like, dude, this movie is premiering at Sundance. And it's, like, it's weird though, because, you know, I don't know, I don't know how many people would have taken the gamble, not just on, again, like working, you know, completely outside of their knowledge base, but doing it on such a bizarre movie, you know, that like this, because there's a sense when you really look at the premise of the film that this could really kind of go either way. I was so confident in those guys, mm-hmm. the Daniels, after working mm-hmm. with them um, on Simple Math, our music yeah. video, and seeing what they'd done and yeah. Knowing those guys and becoming friends with them, I, I mean, Rob and I just wanted to be. And then even if it's a failure, it's yeah. going to be a spectacular one, right? It'll be yeah. it'll be a fun one to be a part of. We never really even thought about yeah. it being as polarizing as it was, yeah. You know, and and when Sundance came, you know that the the, the premiere of Sundance was like the Eccles Theater, the prime time Sundance opening, sixteen hundred people, and I think eight people walked out of it. But what was crazy was the next day. You go and you look up the. We were Googling it all the time. So we'd Google and, like, you you Google Swiss Army Man, and there were like 110 things that showed up, and most of them were Swiss Army knives. Yeah. And then the next day, it was yeah. like 11.3 million hits, yeah. and yeah. it was like mass walkout at Sundance. <laughs> people hate the Harry Potter farting movie. It was like, it's like, no, dude. Eight people walked out yeah. of that place, yeah. and they loved it. But it's, it's such a different thing than your own album, because if we were to do that with this album coming out, we'd go insane. There's always bad press. But we were hiding behind, like, we just did the music. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to look everything up. 
And so we were like seeing it happen in real time. And just, I think the next day we saw some of the producers and they're like, did you see how much press it got? <laughs> they, just they, the any press is good press. Yeah. They yeah. were able to see that like, oh, this is going to just get people talking. Yeah. And that's what it did. There's a lot of people who love that movie and there's people who don't like it. And I understand it's, it's for a certain group of people. It's not for my step granddad. Yeah. It's for my friends type thing. How much do you take like negative criticism, negative reviews to heart? I mean, like Pitchfork has not been very nice to you guys over the years. Well, there's always an interesting thing with those dudes. It's yeah. like, I mean, it's not like bad. They're not giving you, you know, a two, but like a five is uh, lukewarm is probably a good way to put it. I always kind of looked at it like those dudes couldn't ever like they couldn't not review the record yeah. because a lot of our fans, yeah, like are, I would say, our people fan- would take note if it wasn't on the site. Yes, and I think they know. They, they knew. I don't know what they're all about now because now they're writing about us. Um, so yeah. who knows? It's it's comical. It's really funny. Like our first record was like a five point one. The next record was a five point two. The yeah. next record was a five point three. Like it's like comically. Like they've got a dartboard on the wall. Funny. Like yeah, by the time we reach thirty <laughs> albums, we'll be yeah. you know to seven. Um, <laughs> it's progress. But, progress but, is but, progress. Uh, but I don't give a shit, and none yeah. of those people have ever made records, and so it doesn't. That doesn't ever. I learned after the second time it happened yeah. that like they're not going to hurt my feelings uh, with this stuff. Is that kind of feedback less valuable because they're not musicians? Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think yeah. any. Uh, it's not even feedback. Well, yeah, but, it, but you know, obviously, just, like they don't have. They have a very different insight. I guess. Yeah. If. if hypothetical question but if a very experienced musician who'd made great albums wrote a detailed review about why they didn't like my album it would definitely be sure worse than from someone who has not made an album phil collins like shat on your album it would would be be... a bummer yeah (laughs) it would would be heartbreaking yeah yeah Yeah. i mean anybody i mean anybody could do it yeah that's always been a weird thing it's like that but we've never asked that site to review our records that they always yeah. did and they never said too much good stuff and they never said too much bad stuff and uh, I guess we just kind of live there <laughs> this was something as, as somebody who's done lots of music reviewing over the years you know it's it's something I've thought a lot about is the um, obviously the, the the subjectivity of it all mm-hmm. um, yeah but but, but, but also mention. like but but also uh, you know the importance of context when it comes to looking at a record you know not only the, the you know the 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 context that the record was created in, but literally like the context that you're bringing to it, like how you're feeling during that week. Yeah. I think it's interesting. It's like I've read, um, over the years, you read certain reviews of, 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 you know, people going like, well, they're not doing it as well as this band. And then you go, I was never trying to be like that band. Yeah. You're missing the point. This is not what we're trying to do. Yeah. And then you have to let it go. I mean, you just literally have to turn that switch off and stop reading any of it. That kind of feedback doesn't have any sort of bearing on the music that you're making at the end no, of the day? No. No. Definitely not. Yeah. Um, no. I mean, you can't. You can't, like, allow somebody else's opinion, small-framed opinion yeah. on what you're doing, affect what you're trying to create. I mean, creating music's like, the greatest gift in the world. And creating music that people care about is an even greater gift and that's uh i'm really more concerned about what we think about it and and how we feel that's a level of completion and 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 fulfillment when we finish a record that's like man we did every single thing we could do and now it is no longer up to us 
and we we can try and sell it as best we can, but it's not something we can really control. You know, we did everything we could. Just to like thirty minutes into the conversation, put some context into like where we are and why we're here. Um, so you've got this new this new record coming out, and I mean this is really, this is a listening party, right? So you you um, we were talking about this before about why it's at this this Sona store, and the idea was to really to to get people in a place in person to to listen to the record and, and, and I mean, in a sense, I mean, this, this didn't occur to me until we started talking about Sundance, but this is kind of the closest that you're going to come to that as far as putting out a record is concerned is really like getting people in a, in a place and watching their reaction to your music in real time. That's true. <laughs> yeah. The cards might be stacked in your favor. Cause I assume anyone who's, who's going to come out for one of these things is probably going to be a fan of yours. And there's no farting on the record. And there's no, there's no dead bodies and farting on the yeah. record. Yeah. This kind of stuff. I just, did learned. you sneak some stuff in to put out? Yeah. <laughs> I just think, uh, this is the kind of this thing where we're here at Sonos. This is, I just feel grateful for this stuff. Like yeah. because we live in the town we live in, because our fans Because there's nobody between the ages of eighteen and forty. That's right. And because our fans are extremely rabid, but they're also they're dormant. They they don't have to talk about us all mm. the time. And so there's sort of an element of when we live in, in between records, it's been three and a half years since our <laughs> last record where like we forget. Yeah, we can. We even start to convince ourselves that people don't care at all about our band, yeah. and that it would be we would be happy if two hundred people showed up. And that's a darkness I'm sure that I'll have to work through one day in therapy. <laughs> but there's something to that where it's like we don't live our lives thinking that people think that we're hot shit. Yeah, ever. I mean, that our, the world our, might not end for them if you didn't come out with exactly. Yeah, that we, you know, and and then when this stuff happens and a bunch of people RSVP and, and yeah. shows start to sell out and people are really excited about what's happening. I mean, it's just it's overwhelming and wonderful, and that's that's really my main emotion about. There's it. a dread that you're going to throw a party one day and no one's going to come. Yeah, and we'll cancel the party. Yeah. <laughs> In the material that I was reading around this record and the lead of this record, I mean, it sounds like there was um, a sense of, of, of writer's block that this might have been one of the more difficult records for you guys to really to initiate. Yeah, it was sort of a nightmare uh, just, <laughs> just trying to – and in a sense, it should be. I mean, it shouldn't be easy. That's, yeah. that's sort of – But something. a nightmare. It shouldn't be a nightmare. Moments. Moments yeah, were nightmare-ish. Um, but it's, it wasn't a nightmare. No, I mean, it, it in no way was a nightmare. It was just, you know, you said something earlier about, like, we give ourselves homework assignments. Yeah. Well, then Swiss Army Man was like our master's thesis. Yeah. And then this record is like, all right, you have your master's thesis. What what are you going to do with it? Yeah. You know? and, and You've got the, this new skill set. Exactly. How and and how are you going to use it? How are you going to use it effectively? Yeah. And we didn't know that. And it was just a lot of trial and error and, you know, a lot of uh, evaluation of what was important. You know, we're, we we have a tendency at times to – we tried to strip it back with Cope, but, like, we love a lot. And this record was about taking – away the a lot yeah. and trying to still hit you right in your soul and so yeah we were thinking you know once we sort of got the idea behind it it was kind of a soulful futuristic 
folk record, which sounds insane and terrible. But that was sort of the the mindset we had of like we got to create something we're not really comfortable with. There, there's a sense that you know having a, a new a new skill set at your disposal is absolutely a good thing. But at the same time, I mean, there's there's kind of maybe an added pressure there of like, okay, we've got this new thing that we can use. We've got a new arrow in our quiver that we can use. But you know, how do we actually apply that to what we do? How do we how do we how do we take this very different thing, apply it to what we do, and still like, I mean, in a sense, I mean, I know you guys have kind of been all over the board sonically with the bands, but I mean, there's I, I assume that you've still got some sort of central thesis as far as what constitutes a Manchester Orchestra song. I, th- I think with this one though, we knew that there was that, and we knew that that common thread was like we know how to be loud and we know how to be powerful. So yeah. how do we? maintain the power and how do we hit people that same way but it doesn't have to be the guitars they've heard the guitars and there are the guitars on the record but why would we continue mm-hmm. to do the same thing if we've done it before we've made that piece of art we've made that album so it was kind of the nightmare part was more on us looking back at ourselves being like well why do you keep trying to react the same way you need to you need to skip your first instinct and find the next thing Mm. and so there was a lot of i know what you want to do i know what you're trying to do how do we find the better version of that how do we reverse engineer this thing and kind of mess it all up and then start all over again it's funny though i mean because you know like rock and roll should be a little bit primal right i mean sometimes the first instinct is the best instinct yeah but i think you could ask any band on their fifth record sure, great sure rock and sure. roll band if that works sure. for them and they'd say absolutely sure. not. i mean maybe, maybe the ramones <laughs> would be an exception to that there are probably exception. a few yeah. But yeah and they their records are like 26 minutes long so yeah. by the yeah. time it's true and that was that was several records in but that's a fair point yeah said in the mic uh they also went with phil Spector on end yeah. of century in 1980 yeah a lot of a lot of sense on that record yeah <laughs> Um, I think you said it really well, though. It's it's our frustration, and our nightmare was more of, yeah, this is an awesome Manchester song, but this isn't a special Manchester song. How hmm. do we make this a special yeah. thing for us? I was reading a, an interview with you guys uh, this this morning, and uh, a quote jumped out at me where uh, you basically said, like, I mean, it sounded like the issue is more was not so much never making the same thing or or a similar thing ever again, but just not doing it back to back and making sure that adjacent records are different from one another. What quote was that? That's I don't know. I'm gonna go back and look at it. I but, it, but... Um, I mean, I th- I certainly think re- the records are a reaction in some way to to the to, previous to each other. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. Um, but I think they're also like this time with the fifth record. This was the first time it was a reaction to the discography. Hmm. It was like yeah. look back at everything that's yeah. been done and try to not repeat that but still hold that thing that we love about that, you know, and make sure that that's still in the mix. That's the only way you can go after making, after having your last two records literally be a reaction to one another, of having two different versions of the the same thing. Yeah, Basically, like, had a fresh, fresh slate to do it all over again because, yeah, we reacted to ourselves. Yeah, We made the counterpiece and then... That was another nightmare of this, of us looking around being like, uh, shit, this is record five. We yeah. mess this up. We kind of fall into that band of like, well, oh, their early records are great. 
it was exciting because it was scary at first, and then towards the end of it, it really started to to manifest as like, oh, this is like the beginning. Are you, wait, are you like talking about Cope and Hope? Or are you talking about the uh, new this one? new record? New one. Okay. Yeah, after Cope and Hope, that was like as Rob was saying. That's why Swiss Army Man was such a godsend yeah. because we were like, well, we did it. And we did the loud and we did the quiet and we did it as best as we possibly but could. But what was the thinking behind releasing the same record twice? Uh, because the song, we loved the songs, yeah. you know, and we loved the idea of like this is probably the last time in our youth that we can huh. like get away with our punk rock record yeah it doesn't work when i'm 33 yeah. or 35 cope was getting it out of your system and then hope was going a little deeper into them yeah so the whole time we were writing the record we were we were talking about yeah hope we were going like yeah this we got to do this other thing yeah. like we have to and we and after the engineers would leave at the end of the night we'd sit in the room and play these soft versions together and and figure out how we were going to record this other record. That's so a like, really weird way to think about a record is like all of the other ways you could be recording. It. Yeah, I know. But I mean, shit, if it's yeah. our fourth record, what else are we supposed to think? Sure. <laughs> but I mean, did, but did you feel like you didn't you didn't get the best version out of it the first time? We knew there would be two. So yeah. there was a commitment. But there's the, but the there's not there's not a qualitative one is better than the other. No, I can't decide which one I like more. Yeah. Um, I, I really like both of them a lot. I, I think it was an act of commitment yeah. and an exercise of commitment to go like, can you make a, you know, can you make your, is this it? Like your rock yeah, record, yeah. your, your 36 minute long rock record. Can you, can you do something that's tight and succinct and it's there and the songs are there and there's no, it's, you know, there's no fat. all the fat. Yeah. It's all right there. Um, Cause we love fat and <laughs> we love interesting fat, you know, on our songs and, um, so that was the, the real exercise of that. Let's break this down to like the gnarliest guitar sounds. Let's use the rhythm guitars. That was another thing we had. Like, let's use the rhythm guitars as the, as the rhythm track. Like, let's have that almost be the rhythm section of the record. You know, you're saying it like, like 30 is like some sort of cutoff point, but obviously, you know, 30 is all seem is going to seem a lot younger in hindsight. Of course. And I've been thinking about this a lot from the standpoint of, so Chuck Berry died and, uh, they put out his last record, um, like a month or two ago. I don't know if you guys have listened to it. I haven't listened to it. Okay. No. So I was waiting for it and thinking about it and wondering like what Chuck Berry's final statement is going to sound like. And, you know, is this going to be like his like black his star? Yeah. His black star or like even his like Johnny Cash, Rick Rubin record mm-hmm. uh, was an American three and four. Yeah. 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 Is yeah. it going to be that? And it came out and it was like a Chuck Berry record. And I was like, yeah, that's what I wanted. Yeah, Chuck totally. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't think I wanted an introspective, deep yeah. Chuck Barrick. and I don't think there's a point that you're going to get to where you can't put out a rock record. Um, yes, I agree with that. I, but I also don't really want to do that as much anymore. Okay, like, I, I, I want there to be large elements of that. Yeah, but I want to figure out a way to rock differently. Yeah, like Cope was such a wonderful experience for us to be able to like finally yeah. do that kind of guttural thing that we wanted to do. And then when we did it, we we matched it with the beautiful acoustic thing that we wanted to do. And then it felt like, yeah, we're, we're, we're good. We don't want to make that guttural record if we're not like hungry for it. Yeah. And so we felt... And if it's not appropriate for the songs. Yeah. And we, so we felt that hunger and it was like, we should, you know, go yeah. 100% into this instinct because... 
because we look I know we we look at our discography like they're movies like they're yeah. they're a part of a story and they're it's or maybe it's like a Quentin Tarantino thing of like they all exist in the same, same sort universe. of universe yeah. you know and this was like our death proof you yeah. know cope was that kind of here is this thing and it's like don't don't overthink it just enjoy it you know uh, and and hope was this kind of lovely little beautiful Woody Allen movie in my mind and and that was you know, I think for certain people, it helped them understand what was happening during Cope and helped understand the songs. But once that was done, it was like we'd used all our tools and, and then therefore we needed this soundtrack to happen and, and, and all the stuff to that followed. To cleanse the palate. Exactly. Coming off these, these two albums, soundtrack aside, where you've got some like two very clear thesis statements. And it sounds like, you know, it really seems like you're a band where a thesis statement is kind of important, that at least there's some sort of sun at the center of the solar system of this record that, like, ties these songs together. So you come up doing this completely different thing. You do the soundtrack. You have a little bit of writer's block. You have to basically, like, hold yourselves up in a cabin to write this new record. Um, Is there a central thesis statement that you can point to that ties all these songs together on the new one? Yeah, it's it's the it's family. It is uh, to borrow from the Lion King. It is the circle of life. It is about Akuna Matata. Akuna to borrow from the Lion King. Akuna Matata. Um, it is about, from my perspective, as is the writer, it, it was about understanding that my position and uh, an importance in my world um, had shifted dramatically. Yeah. 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 And in a wonderful way, in a way that I started to realize that this is all a part of just a story. And there were people four, five, six generations before me who were going through the exact same thing. And there will be my great, 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 great granddaughters and great, 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 great grandsons yeah. that will be going through this similar cycle of, uh, life to sort of like reuse that that metaphor then it's kind of moving from being the um the sun of a solar system to being a planet in someone else's solar system. <laughs> 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 what are you he nailed it folks he nailed it folks <laughs> yeah, yeah just repeat what i said for a bit uh that's beautiful i i i, I hope so i i think um it became pretty obvious to me as i was writing the record that the record was going to be kind of bigger than my own perspective and it was going to be about kind of diff- several different layers were of you family. giving were you sort of almost sending like a message i hope so yeah i mean i love the idea i love 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 the idea of this album being a love letter to my daughter that when she is yeah. my age she can listen back and go like my dad worked his ass off to try and make this beautiful kind of family whatever you called it thesis of 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 his life at that time. I hope that she looks at it like that. That's certainly intended to be kind of a letter to her. There you go. That was the guys from Manchester Orchestra recorded at, and we mentioned this toward the end of the conversation that was recorded at the record release party for their new album, which I believe uh, officially came out last week as of the recording this podcast. Uh, but they did that listening party maybe a month or two ago at the Sono store in Manhattan at an event sponsored by a a certain company that makes bourbons and rye. So if it seemed like that conversation was flowing a little bit more loosely than usual, that that might be the culprit right there. 
I enjoyed it a lot and, you know, very interesting speaking to them just moments before they debuted it to a bunch of fans at that event. Uh, the album is officially out now as the, the recording of this show uh, came out last week. It's called The Black Mile to the Surface. Check it out. Uh, thanks so much to them for taking the time to do that. Thanks to uh, Hector for setting up that conversation. Thanks to the fine people at the unnamed Bourbon and Rye Whiskey Distillery for uh, helping that conversation flow as well as it did. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, please consider rating us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we have a Patreon out there somewhere if you want to throw a little bit of cash our way because we are actually it's actually costing us money to do this show. We are paying for the uh, the hosting fees. I'm doing all the editing myself at this point. So if you want to throw a little bit of cash our way, we would be very grateful. Uh, if you have any feedback, it's rwellcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rwellcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your R-I-Y-L-related information. Like us on Facebook, and uh, I think that's about all I got for this week, so stick around, because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of R.A.Y.L.